0: chapter 14. That's where we are as we're working our way through the book of Romans. Uh, Romans 14 will be in verses 10 through 12 today. If you don't have a Bible, you can pick up one of the black Bibles that's sitting on the end of each pew, and in that Bible it should be on page 949. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself, a physical paper copy of the Bible, then please take that one with you. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. Uh, So let's read together. From Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. What if I were to tell you today that I have irrefutable evidence that there's a group of three people who regularly attend this church who have been, on an ongoing basis, and without repentance, judging each other? Sometimes one sitting in judgment of another, sometimes that one turning it around and judging the first person, sometimes third person coming in to judge one or the other of those first two and then those two turning the tables to judge him a little circle of people who love to act as each other's judges. Well I actually do have that evidence and I have photographic evidence of it on my phone and it is from Rubik's Cubing competitions that I've attended with those three Ben, Isaac, and <laughs> because at those competitions at each time somebody solves a cube there has to be a judge sitting there to make sure everything's happening appropriately to write down yes this solve was done the right way and whenever you're not solving so a lot of times it's your turn to be the judge so I have pictures of those three judging each other now From that, maybe when I first started talking, a few of you guys got a little bit nervous. Oh no. He's going to call out three names of people who are judging each other. Maybe you can see from that that not all human judgment is bad. We all know this. Somebody has to be there to say, yes, this Rubik's Cube solve was done the proper way. We can write down the time, all that kind of stuff, but... As we're going to see today, as the scripture passage points out, some human judgment, and even some judgment from genuine Christians, is bad. It truly is bad and ought not to be done. And all human judgment, whether we're talking about judgment that's done rightly according to the commands of Christ, or whether it's judgment that is done wrongly, as it says here, who are you to judge your brother or to despise your brother, all human judgment. Is very small when you put it into comparison with the fact that God's judgment is over all and that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. Let's think first of all about man's judgment, the smallness of man's judgment. As it says in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why, you, why do you despise your brother? Now, we got to clear some things up here about judgment, about judging. Now, almost anybody, if you ask them, almost anybody in America who's ever heard anything about Jesus or the Bible, if you said, well, what does the Bible say about judging people? Almost everybody would be able to quote you two words that Jesus said, and those words are, judge not. However, most people haven't heard the whole context, or at least taken it into into consideration, here's what Jesus said. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. He said, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see this passage that's so often quoted, judge not, judge not. Jesus doesn't say, well, never make any kind of moral judgments whatsoever. In fact, he doesn't even say, never try to remove the speck from your brother's eye what he does say is it is incredibly hypocritical to say to your brother, you need to get this fixed, but I myself, I am immune to judgment. I am the kind of person who has such a status that I should be the one taking care of everybody else's sins, and therefore I need no one to look out and help me see my own sin. Jesus, what he does here is he doesn't say that there should never be any judgment. He says that we ought to judge in such a way that we're also open to judgment toward us and be loving in the way that we would help our brother remove the speck from his eye, where we're also coming to our brother and saying, would you please look in my eye? Would you please look? Would you please help me see the log or the speck or anything in between that's there that we need help with in that same chapter where jesus says judge not he also says in matthew 7 verse 20 you will recognize them by their fruits and he's that's a passage where jesus is talking about the false teachers who would come and those who would try to lead god's children astray and those who would be leading astray would have fruits that are not good and we can't see anyone's heart but we can see fruits. Fruits are actions and fruits are words, the things that are observable and Jesus says observe those words and those actions and recognize them by their fruits which is a kind of, of judgment. Jesus actually says in John 24, John excuse me, John 7:24, do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. So if you are, are prone to take the words "judge not" out of context, just know that you could just easy, easily take the command in John seven twenty four to judge out of context. Jesus didn't say just judge not; he said be willing to have yourself judged. And Jesus didn't just say judge in John seven twenty four; he said judge with right judgment. Actually, gave us the command. To judge, not by appearances, but with right judgment. One of the funniest statements that can come out of somebody's mouth is, you're judgmental. It's one of the most judgmental things you can possibly say to someone, isn't it? You are judging me. Anybody who says, oh, well, it is wrong to ever make a moral judgment is making a moral judgment by saying so. So we cannot, it is just simply impossible, to go through life without making any kind of moral judgments. But what Jesus says is judge with right judgment, and realize that you yourself need to be examined as well, and to, help, to be helped along out of sin. So what the Bible is telling us is that we ought not to make the wrong kinds of judgments. There are very good kinds of judgments. For example, Christian, whenever you meet somebody new, one of the most important things for you to do is to begin to evaluate, you might use the word judge, whether or not you're talking to a Christian. Because we need to know, am I talking to somebody who is my brother or sister in Christ that I can have that kind of fellowship in the gospel with? Or am I talking to somebody who is still lost in their sins, who I need to seek to persuade to come to Christ in faith. Right? So when we meet somebody new, we have to start making some kind of a based on their fruit to say, is this someone who exhibits repentance and faith toward Jesus? Or is this somebody who I want to tell about repentance and faith toward Jesus so that they can be saved? Jesus came in verse 20, or excuse me, Matthew 28:18, Jesus said, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." He said that. And so therefore, you know what he said next? "Therefore, don't make any judgment calls whatsoever and don't bother telling anybody about Jesus because I'm their judge, just leave it up to me." Is that what he said? No, he said, "All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me; therefore, go and make disciples." Go and make disciples of all nations. So he actually said, because I am the ultimate judge, because I have authority over all people, therefore go and start talking to people, to their hearts, and seeking to win them out of their lost state and to win them to become disciples of Jesus Christ. Another thing that we can know is that that we have to have some kind of, of a judgment toward fellow Christians, especially toward fellow church members, but in a healthy and loving way. Right? Jesus didn't say, never remove the speck from your brother's eye, but he said, first remove the log from your own. So we, we have to be humbly open to having fellow believers lovingly help us to leave sin behind, and even showing us our blind spots. And we need to be humbly and lovingly willing to help others leave their sin behind now if you're known as the person who well when when this guy is coming i know i'm about to hear about my sin then you're probably not doing it the way that jesus would have you to do it we we ought to be known as the people who when when somebody sees you coming this is the guy who likes me this is the lady who cares about me is on my side And then in that being on my side may sometimes also point out things to me that I didn't realize that are kind of coming out of my heart when I open my mouth, something like that. We need that from each other. We need that kind of love and help to be shown our blind spots and to leave sin behind. Another thing you should know is that in the Bible, the judgment by an individual is not the same as judgment by a church congregation. Sometimes there are well-meaning Christians who think that a church ought to never ever call out a member and, and ask them to repent, or that a church ought to never carry out church discipline to remove an unrepentant sinner from their membership because, boy, that would be judgmental. Well, Jesus addressed that directly. He said in Matthew 18, I'm just going to I know we're, we're in Romans 14, but I'm going to exposit to you Matthew 18 for just a second, if you don't mind. Maybe you want to flip there. Keep your finger in Romans 14 and turn to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. He says this, if your brother sins against you, that's an individual sinning against an individual, he says, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. That's an exercising of right judgment, right? But he says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And praise God. Praise God. We ought to be the kind of loving brothers and sisters in Christ where we feel confident, hey, we can go to each other and gain our brother and help each other out of sin. But then verse 16, he says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, there's, there's two possible reasons for that. One is because the brother who is in sin may not believe just one particular person who came to them and may need to see, hey, there's two or three others who also see this. Maybe I should take this more seriously. The other possible reason for this is that the brother who is saying you're in sin could be mistaken. And it could be that those two or three others would help to show that brother who feels that he's been wronged. Hey, you're kind of off base here. You you, you really ought not to be accusing your brother of this thing. It's not that big of a deal. So he says, "Get you can get two or three others involved." But then, if if this is an actual dishonoring of God, this is an actual moral failure that this person just won't listen to to correction about he says if he in verse 17 if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen to even the church by the way the word church means assembly means the congregation of believers he says if he refuses to listen even to the church then let him be to you as a gentile and a tax collector now that doesn't mean let him be to you as somebody who is hated jesus absolutely loved gentiles and tax collectors but you know what he did? He called them to repent. Before they had repented, he wasn't going to say, "Well, you you're in the kingdom." He would call them to repent and to believe and he says this is the instruction from jesus even if you have somebody who you've you've treated as a brother for a long time but they are just persistently refusing the calls to repent of sin that is clear as sin to everybody in the church if that's the case then then the church has to make a judgment call to be able to say we can no longer regard this person as a believer not that we necessarily know whether or not they are but But the fruit is not demonstrating faith in Christ and what they're doing. Now, if you say to yourself, that's a really weighty thing. That's a really weighty thing. How could we ever make a judgment call like that? Well, we've had to do it before, and it's not a pleasant thing, and we long to not have to do it again. But Jesus gives us assurance in this that he's on our side in it. Because he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven or maybe translated better shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven and again i say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name there am i among them do you know when jesus said that about two or three being gathered in his name he wasn't talking about what we do when we're discouraged that only a couple of people showed up at prayer meeting. And he didn't just give us this as something to pull out to say, oh, well, we've got two or three, we're okay. He gave us this as an encouragement to say, even if you are a little bitty church that is insignificant in the world's eyes, and, and God puts the responsibility of church discipline in your hands, and it is a weighty responsibility, and you are nervous about the judgment that may come from the congregation toward an unrepentant sinner, he says, I am with you in this. He's giving them an encouragement where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And you can trust that God himself, by the Spirit of Christ, is going to lead the congregation in making wise judgments in that sort of thing. And so he gives us assurance about that. But we have to know, too, that that's instructions that God gave to the church. God gave those instructions to the congregation. And that's different from the instructions that he gives to individual Christians. He does not give individual Christians the right to excommunicate each other. Or to declare, I am pretty sure you are just not a believer. He puts that in the hands of churches to say, let's together... Seek the wisdom of God by the power of the Spirit of God and let's let's seek to be a believing church and to guard those guardrails. But so far, all of this has been caveats. All of this has been caveats because trying to say, okay, just because we've come across a verse that says, why do you pass judgment, that doesn't mean that all moral judgment is bad or that every kind of judgment is bad, because Jesus actually told us to judge with right judgment. So we've kind of kind of been working through some caveats, but let's get down to what this text actually says. It says, here's some bad judgment. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? The context of what's going on here in Romans 14 is that there are those who are weak in the faith, who feel that they have to keep certain regulations that God has actually not required them to keep, that that is what they ought to do out of honor for Christ. Now, if they feel that they have to keep those regulations in order to be a Christian, then they're not Christians. Because we're saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. If you think to yourself, I must keep Jewish kosher laws because they're, you know, they're, they're there back in the first few books of the Bible, and Jesus is in the Bible, and therefore if I'm going to follow Jesus, I can't, I can't go to heaven unless I keep the kosher law. If that's what you think, you're not a Christian. But what this is talking about is those who were keeping those certain regulations, knowing that they're not going to get their sins forgiven by that, knowing that they're not made a Christian by that, but just with something on their conscience, like, if I'm going to honor Christ, this is how I think i got to do it. And he says that's the weak position, but he says in, in this first phrase to those who are strong... To those who have a better understanding of the Christian faith, who know that they're free in those kinds of regulations, he says, but why do you pass judgment on your brother? To those who are are convinced, as it started out in Romans 14, that a a vegetarian diet is the way to honor Christ, probably because not just of Old Testament regulations, but of fear of having anything to do with meat sacrificed to idols and that pagan culture, an issue we addressed two weeks ago. Or or even to those who are convinced that, that keeping the Jewish festival days is the way that they ought to honor Christ. That's on their conscience. We addressed that last week. Or even to those who are convinced that not touching wine is the way that they must honor Christ. That's an issue that's coming up later in the chapter. Or even to those who would have other kinds of regulations that they're convinced of that they have to do this in order to follow Christ, but that others just don't see those regulations as being binding. In scripture well all of those are kind of presented as hey this is the weak position but those of you who are strong in your faith you need to see hey this is not something to despise and in the same way he's saying look you who hold those positions you who feel that you need to have this regulation don't look at those who don't feel that they need to have that regulation and pass judgment on them he says this is the temptation of the weak when they look at the strong and they see the strong walking in freedom in Christ and buying anything in the meat market without asking has this been sacrificed to Zeus but just trusting to meat god gave it to me i can give thanks and eat those who are, are, are strong in their faith and saying, hey, yeah, I know that Yom Kippur was last week, but I didn't have to do anything different on that day because Christ, my sacrifice, has been slain once and for all. Uh, you can imagine other kinds of, of, of things like that Maybe, I'm, I'm just making something up, all right? I hope I don't accidentally start a cult out of, out of making something up like this, okay? I'm just imagining what, what kind of regulations could somebody who's well-meaning start to come up with and to keep if they're, if they're trying to put together the Bible, but just doing it in a weird way. Um, so, so the Bible talks about how we as Christians are made together a kingdom of priests, and it talks in First Peter about how we are living stones built together on Christ the cornerstone. And it talks in Ephesians about how we are together being built into a holy temple, uh, this dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And so I wonder if, if, if there could be some well-meaning Christian who in his mind he puts together those pictures about God's people being the temple in, in this age the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, and, and then goes back to the temple regulations or even the instructions for the tabernacle that are, that are back in the Old Testament. And maybe this well-meaning Christian would do something like read Exodus 26.31 and say, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on the four, four pillars. Maybe they would say that and say, if my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and if my church is a little dwelling place of the Holy Spirit where we are being built together as living stones, as a place to offer spiritual sacrifices, then I am convinced that the proper attire for any time that we go to church is to wear a shirt that is made out of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen and it needs to have cherubim skillfully worked into it because that is the way that the veil on the tabernacle was. I mean that would have been a beautiful thing to be able to walk into the tabernacle and to look up at the ceiling and to see almost this picture of of the twilight night sky with all of those colors and with the, the beautiful picture of these angels worked into those cloths and but but then somebody could potentially say, but if we're now the temple, then we got to be dressed like that. Now, if somebody says that, that's a little ridiculous. And yet, if it's on their conscience, this is what I want to do out of honor to Christ. It's on their conscience. What this verse is saying, though, is if you're the kind of guy who thinks I, I, I need to honor Christ by wearing a special blue and purple shirt with angels on it to church. Don't look at the people who show up with a regular suit jacket or in shorts or whatever. Don't look at those people and think, they do not honor Christ. Do not pass judgment on those people. Whatever those regulations are that you feel on your conscience that you want to honor Christ with, Don't stand in judgment on your brother who doesn't feel the same need to follow those regulations. And in the same way, he turns it around and says to those who are are strong, or why do you despise your brother? You can imagine the people looking around at the guy coming in with the weird purple angel shirt and saying, what a weirdo. And what is he doing? And he's so weak in his faith and he doesn't understand And this says, hey, don't belittle that guy. He's seeking to honor Christ. What he's doing, he doesn't realize that it's the weak position. He he just has it on his conscience. I want to honor Jesus in keeping this thing. And he says, so don't belittle him. Don't say you know those who have certain things on their conscience don't say hey you're dishonoring christ by not doing what's on my conscience and those who don't feel the need to do that well don't cut them down to size in your own mind that's the kind of judgment that is the opposite of philippians 2 3 philippians 2 3 tells us to do this in humility count others more significant than yourselves i'm going to read that again okay This is is the key to not exercising sinful judgment toward one another. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Whenever the Bible brings up the idea of sinful kinds of judgments, it always has to do with pride. It always has to do with pride. It always has to do with approaching people as though we had some sort of a right to present ourselves as higher than them. When in fact what the Bible says, especially toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, is look at them and say, that is someone who is more significant than me. Not someone who I would despise, not someone who I would count as small and belittle in my heart. That person is more significant than me and I want to help them, serve them, love them, build them up, show that I count them as more significant than myself. We can say, praise God for your honoring of Christ, instead of, why are you acting so weak? We are glad, by the way. Paul says this to to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13.9. He says, we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Wouldn't it be neat if everybody in the church became strong? And we can pray for that. And when we, when we look at a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, they're, they're, they're kind of weak, we say, hey, let's pour into them, and maybe one day they'll become stronger than us. Paul even says, hey, maybe, maybe you, church of Corinth, maybe you'll become stronger in your faith than me, the apostle Paul. Praise God for that. And, and, and that's the opposite of passing judgment and despising and belittling one of the one of the hard things is it's not always easy to tell in particular controversies which position is the strong position and which position is the weak position. Right? Kind of whichever position you hold, you, you say to yourself, well, the other guy has the weak position. Obviously mine's the strong one. But this says, hey, let's let's regardless of whether you think you're in the strong position or not, count others more significant than yourself. Don't despise your brother. Don't pass judgment on your brother where your brother is seeking to honor Christ, praise God that he's honoring Christ, even if it's weird. All right? So, all of this is a great reason for the next statement, which is this, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Our judgment can be mistaken. We can be wrong about who's weak and who's strong. We can be wrong about all kinds of things. But we will all stand... Before the judgment seat of God. The point right now is man's judgment is small because man is small. God's judgment is great because God is great. Even where we exercise judgment with right judgment, even where we follow the commands of Christ to be faithful in difficult judgments like church discipline. Even in times where we are seeking to lovingly remove the speck from our brother's eye, even as he removes the speck from our own eye, in all of those times, we have to keep in mind that man's judgment is always fallible. It's always possible for us to get it wrong. It is never possible for God to get it wrong. God is God. Man is fallible. Any human judge, any human jury can get a case wrong. That's why there's a system to appeal a ruling in the courts. And even after it goes to the appeals court, it can go up to a higher court all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. And you may have noticed that there's not just one Supreme Judge of the United States. There's a reason for that, which is it's really easy for one person to get it wrong. And so right now there are nine judges on the U.S. Supreme Court, but I think we're all pretty aware as well that even nine judges on the U.S. Supreme Court can get a ruling wrong. And they're aware of that because sometimes they end up overturning their own rulings. And so man's judgment is fallible. God's judgment, though, is what is right and is never mistaken. And we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. This is paralleling what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, "...for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil." That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 4.5, "...do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart." then each one will receive his commendation from God. And that brings us to verse 11, where we're going to see the greatness of God's judgment. He says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Maybe we don't just need to know that it's wrong to pass judgment on one another in these ways that the Bible is saying that it's wrong, maybe we need to know that the only judge that we need to fear is God himself. Maybe one of the ways that you're mistaken in your own heart about man's judgment is that you have, without thinking about it, put man's judgment toward you higher in your mind than god's judgment toward you it's called the fear of man the bible commands us to fear god the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom jesus tells us do not fear man who can kill the body He says that's that's the worst thing a person can possibly do to you is kill you but fear god who is able to cast both body and soul into hell God is the one who has the final say on our heaven, on our hell, on our eternity and over each and every thought of our heart and word of our mouths and actions that we've carried out in the body and he will disclose the hidden purposes of the heart. God puts other believers in our lives for our good to help us see our blind spots. We need their judgments. Those are healthy, but ultimately we need to fear God and not man. We will stand before him. When he gives this quote, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. That's a quote from Isaiah 45. Rick read it for us at the beginning of the service. It's an almost exact quote from the Greek translation of Isaiah 45. But it shows us that there's a day of judgment that is coming. We're not talking here about the private judgment. When I say private judgment, there's a reality that when each one of us dies, we will go immediately either into the presence of Christ in heaven or into suffering in hell. And that's a kind of judgment that's happening right there. Because we're going to go one place or the other, and that's in the hands of God. But what this is talking about is what's coming even after that. That there will be a public judgment. There's going to be a time when it is displayed before all creatures who is God's sheep, And who are God's goats? Who it is that God will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant, and who it is that will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. There is a time of public judgment coming at the return of Christ. Here's what we have said together that we believe about this in our confession of faith. The New Hampshire Confession, the version from 1853, which this church first adopted in 1856, it says, We believe that the end of the world is approaching, that at the last day, Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final retribution, that a solemn separation will take place, that the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment, and the righteous to endless joy, and that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness. I don't think we're talking here about a bunch of different judgments. I know that there is the dispensational system that ever since about the 1830s has been teaching, well, there's this judgment and this judgment and then that judgment and then this one and this group of people is going to be in this judgment. This group of people is going to be in that judgment. I cannot describe to you that system because I wasn't brought up in it and I don't see it in the Bible. So I'm just going to lay out what I think is here, which is that there is a judgment day coming when Christ returns and raises the dead and that all mankind will stand before him and will be judged. It's described as the great white throne in Matthew 25. Or excuse me, in in Revelation 20, it's described as the great white throne. In Matthew 25, it's described as the separation between the sheep and the goats. It's called the day of the Lord. And it's the day when all mankind will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will receive Their public shame, if they are not in Christ, if they are counted among the wicked, or their public commendation, their public acknowledgement and acquittal before all creation, if they have the righteousness of Christ counted to them by faith, if they are among the righteous by faith. I'm going to read to you what it says about this in Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it That's Jesus. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Just like the nations represented in the book of Daniel with this statue that was struck down and the pieces of it, a place for them couldn't be found, the earth and sky fleeing away. And he says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Jesus also describes that scene as this gathering before him of all the nations where he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll describe to them their deeds. Those who are righteous in Christ will be surprised on some level to hear of the righteous deeds that Christ would recount to them and say, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? And those who were wicked before Christ will be surprised to hear their wicked deeds recounted. When did we ever see you hungry and not feed you, they will say. But he'll say to those who are his, who are his sheep by his grace, well done, good and faithful servant. He will say, enter into the joy of your master. Thomas Manton said of this, said of this judgment, the way that it's described even here in Romans 14, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He said this, All that have lived from the beginning of the world unto that day shall without exception of any one single person, from the least unto the greatest, appear before the tribunal of Christ. No age, no sex, or nation, or dignity, or greatness can excuse us. In the world, some are too high to be questioned, but others too low to be taken notice of. But there all are brought forth to undergo their trial. There is no shifting or avoiding this day of appearance. Adam will there meet with all of his posterity at once. Take all the distinctions of mankind, infants and grown persons, good and bad is the next distinction. Both sorts come to receive their sentence. Only the one come to judge the judgment of condemnation. The other to the judgment of absolution, as John five twenty-eight and twenty-nine says, "Those that have done evil, or excuse, who have done good, to the resurrection of life, and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation." He cites Acts twenty-four fifteen. There shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And Manton says, "Thus shall all people that live, scattered upon uh, the world, however much so." F- Soever, they differ from one another in rites, tongues, customs of living, be brought together in one place. Just think of this. Everybody who ever thought that, no, I'm, I'm too high for this. I'm above judgment. They'll be there. Everybody who ever tried to lay low so nobody ever noticed them. They'll be there. Everybody who was high and in positions of power, maybe even considered themselves on some level to be the savior of the world because so many people told them that they were as they achieved positions of power. They'll be there under the judgment of the king of kings and the lord of lords. Everybody will be gathered together. Every knee shall bow to me. Every knee. And he says, every tongue shall confess to God. Or as it's described, as this is quoted in in Philippians 2, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what we ought to do here? We ought to look to God alone as our judge. And we ought to recognize that if we're going to be judged solely on the basis of what we have done every single one of us would be condemned eternally the only way according to roman or excuse me according to revelation 20 that anybody is going to be able to stand in that day of judgment it's not going to be by having your deeds described in the records of what you have done in those books The only way you're going to be able to stand, according to that chapter, is if your name is found written in the book of life. When when God declares those of us who are believers in Christ to be righteous, it's not going to be just because after you got saved you did a bunch of good stuff. It's going to be because Jesus' righteousness has been counted to you by faith. Jesus' righteousness is what is going to be on display for you at the day of judgment. How exactly all of our other deeds are going to come in play for us at the day of judgment for Christians, that's kind of a matter of debate. I don't exactly know. I know that we ought to take what we're doing in the body seriously now because the Bible calls us to take it seriously in in light of the fact that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But I know this. By faith in Jesus Christ, you will be declared righteous in the day of judgment. Not because of the righteousness of your own, but according to Philippians 3, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So that even somebody who comes to the day of judgment, like the the thief on the cross who has no possible good works that he could put on display for the day of judgment, it says in Romans 4-5, to the one who does not work but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Righteousness. The reason is because for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is part of the reason that God uses courtroom language all over the place when he talks about our need to be forgiven of sins, is because one day we will stand before his judgment seat and we need to be declared not guilty we need to be acquitted in the day of judgment and the only way that that is possible is by trusting in the righteous one who died for our sins and rose again whose name is Jesus Christ it's amazing that the very lamb who was slain for us is going to be the judge on the throne he he not only is our judge he is also our savior And so if you want to know, hey, my knee is going to bow. My tongue is going to confess. Go ahead now. Bow your knee to Christ. Submit to Jesus as Lord. Confess your faith in Him now. Profess Him to be Lord. Embrace Him as Savior. Do it now. Don't wait until someday, and then find that on that day of judgment, Your knees are broken, rather than having bent your knee now in joy. What do we do with this? Well, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, come to faith in Christ. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, just know the day of judgment is going to be a day of joy for you. It's going to be a day of joy. It's it's a day of grace to the elect for all those who will ever believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who were chosen before the foundation of the world, who Jesus shed his blood for us, that we come to faith in Christ. And when we come to that judgment seat of God one day, it's going to be to the glory of God in the display of his grace toward us. Our joy is going to be increased in forgiveness. No matter how our sins are spoken of, or if they're just not even brought up at all, I don't really know we'll find out but we do know that it's all going to be for the increase of our joy as the grace of God toward us in Jesus Christ is put on full display for those who are apart from Christ it's going to be fully to the glory of God that God would punish them eternally that God would pronounce the sentence of unjust the sentence of wicked and cast them into that outer darkness forever and ever their deeds will be exposed their shame will be increased in their punishment and all we who are gods will rejoice and magnify god for the display of his glory in his justice toward the reprobate toward the wicked forever and ever what do you do with that if you're outside of christ right now well Follow these instructions. Acts 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Repent, believe, trust in Christ, receive his grace and mercy while it is available before the day of judgment comes. And for us who are in Christ, what do we do? Well, as we consider what God is going to do, as we consider that the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, as we consider that the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed, the instructions in 2 Peter three eleven is this, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? let's pray father thank you for christ who is our savior our king our judge our great prophet who's told us all of these things in advance so that we can know them father i pray that as those who are in christ that you would give us a big view of your lordship and judgment that makes our judgment look small We do pray that where you've called us to to judge with right judgment, we pray that you'd help us to do that in humility and in love and recognizing that you are great above all these things. But Father, I pray that for each one of us, that we would recognize that we will stand before the judgment seat of God. I pray that we would be ready by faith in Jesus for that day. And I pray that you would help us as those who trust in Christ, who are ready to continue to be ready as we live lives as you've instructed us, lives of holiness and godliness as we wait for the coming day of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.